the following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tail of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 11, the scouting expedition follows a trail of blood that leads them to the goblin's cave. The party conceals itself and waits, watching the cave mouth for any activity. Their patience is rewarded near midnight when a goblin hunting party goes out in search of game. The party splits, leaving the two dwarves and Mun, the spearman, to continue watching the cave while the others shadow the goblin hunters. When Captain Tor judges them far enough away that the noise will not alert the other goblins to their presence, he launches an attack that sees three of the hunters slain and one taken prisoner. Umura interrogates the captive using a charm person spell to extract maximum information. Although their attack is not executed perfectly, with three of the party members taking damage, the interrogation is a complete success, and their captive gives up a wealth of information about the goblin outpost. Chapter 12, Part 1, Day 15, Several Hours Before Dawn, Party Status, Captain Tor, 14 of 17 hit points, Eiffelt, 5 of 5, Mun, 5 of 5, Riley the Roach, 7 of 7, Thurn, 19 of 19, Harl, 5 of 5, Kagan, 6 of 8. Umura, 10 of 10. Kyrios, 12 of 14. And Eridine, 4 out of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person. Sometime, several hours before dawn cast its rose-colored glow over the ravine, Tor and the others rejoined Thurn, Harl and Mun to share what they had learned. The two dwarves took news of the prisoners with expressions of cautious optimism on their faces, and they had news of their own to share. Perhaps an hour after Tor's group had left, explained Thurn, a goblin raiding party had exited the cave and headed back toward the south road. Mun added that he had counted 20 raiders. Judging by the large net two of these raiders carried between them, this group was going out in search of more prisoners. Umura subtracted these numbers from the one she'd been given. 
Ilk had said there were about 30 goblins living in the outpost, so with 20 away, possibly for days, and with the four hunters dead, that left only a half dozen or so in the caves. Of course, Ilk had also mentioned that one of the goblins was a brute, and there was still a warg with them, best not to forget about that. But still, it seemed they might actually have the enemy outnumbered. The opportunity seemed too good to waste. Gyrios insisted it was a sign from Mazagar not to be ignored. You know, in Camranth, we often tell the story of Mazagar at Ophion. In the beginning, they had been lovers, but Ophion was a willful young goddess. After her numerous dalliances with mortal men were discovered, Mazagar scorned her. Ever since, the god and goddess have been at war. In our plane of existence, it is expressed through night and day, dark and light. At night, her vast army, which consists of all manner of foul creatures, has power over him. But each day, Mazagar's army of the righteous few pushes back and turns the tide of war. This battle has been waged for eons. As though illustrating his story, the forest started coming to life. Birds sang and a pinkish light began to filter through the canopy overhead. Gyrios continued, Today, we're given a chance to aid the forces of light. We must not ignore so clear a sign. Eridine asked the cleric who was winning the war between god and goddess. The war of the Eternals cannot be seen by mere mortals, but we can read the signs. I cannot say for certain which side holds the greatest strength, but I ask you this. During the night, can we not see that the heavens are full of shining stars? Riley snorted. And in the daytime, we cast shadows. Blah de blah de blah de blah. You clerics are all the same. Horse apples, that's what I say. The captain was right, said Eridine acidly. You are an idiot. Now you just wait a minute. All right, that's enough, interrupted Tor. Listen, we came here to observe and report, but Gyrius is right, at least about this. If we have a chance to cut the head off the snake and rescue two people, we're not going to waste it. Over the next few hours, the party formed their plan. They would wait until midday before moving from the vantage point. The daytime was when goblins slept, so the enemy was most likely to be caught off guard in the afternoon. This plan also allowed for the small chance that the raiders would unexpectedly return. As an added bonus, the rest would do them good. Each Kagan, Tor, and Gyrios would have one hit point restored. Finally, Umura was able to take the time necessary copy the spell of light into her spellbook and to memorize it. By the time the party made their move, she had two spells at her disposal. Their plan was a simple one. They'd watch the cave opening for long enough to discern the guards' habits. One of them must have had a small bladder or just drank a lot, for it came out to relieve itself at the staked ogre's head every two hours like clockwork. Each time it did so, it set its spear against the cave wall. The next time the guard emerged, squinting at the light and shielding its eyes, Eridine was pressed against the cave's outer wall in a shadowed niche. She waited until its back was square towards her before she made her move. There's no need to enter into combat here, as a few rolls of the dice will determine the outcome. When thieves use their special backstabbing ability, they get a plus four to their attack rolls and do double damage. The last time Eridine tried this, she fouled it up badly. And so, despite looking calm and composed, 
She actually feels very nervous in this moment. Normally, she would need a 13 to hit the goblin's AC of 6, but in this case, she only needs to get a 9. I've rolled a 14. Even without her bonus, this is a success. Damage will be doubled. The roll? A 6. Wow, that's 12 points in one strike. The kill is executed perfectly. In one fluid motion, Eridine manages to sneak up behind the goblin and cup her left hand over its mouth while dragging her blade soundlessly across its throat with her right. A gush of black blood falls from its throat and the creature goes limp in her arms. Without releasing her hold, Eridine shuffles backward, dragging the body away and out of sight. When the second guard comes looking for his partner, the first thing he notices is the abandoned spear still leaning against the rock wall. Now he's on his guard and holds his own spear at the ready. Scanning the tree line, he spots his partner by the trunk of a huge oak. His partner is bent over double, with his back to the cave mouth. It's shaking and making coughing noises. The guard calls, but the other goblin doesn't respond. It only continues to shake and cough, so the guard investigates. But by the time it's aware of the trap, it's too late. Arrows from out of nowhere. One of them has found its mark, thudding into the creature's side. The goblin takes three points of damage, but barely has time to yelp in surprise and pain before Harl bursts from concealment, swinging his battle axe. With a 17, he connects four, seven points of damage. Harl takes the goblin down in a broken heap. Kagan, who had been playing the role of macabre puppeteer with the other goblin's body, pushes the corpse away in disgust and wipes his bloody hands in the leaves. Oh, these things stink. He complains. Yeah, wait till we get inside, says Thurn, stepping forward and giving Harl a congratulatory thump on the shoulder. You ever been inside a goblin's nest, Kagan? No, luckily I haven't, Kagan answered. That's about to change. Come on, let's go, said Tor. Eiffel, two torches. Eiffel produced a pair of torches from his pack, lit them, and shifted his shield to his back in order to carry one himself. The other he gave to Umura to hold. They returned to the mouth of the cave, passed between the grim sentinels on their stakes, and went inside. While in the caves, the party's marching order will be as follows. Two abreast, they are. Thurn and Harl in front, with Eifold and Mun right behind. As they carry spears, the two men-at-arms might be able to fight over the dwarves' shoulders, if need be. In the middle go the two women, followed by Riley, Gyrios, and finally Tor and Kagan in the rear. Tor offers that he and his men will defer to Thurn's leadership while they're within the cave. We were actually, uh, me and my friend here. It points to a cat. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, your friend's with a cat. Yes, he's, he's one of those uh, Dreamlands cats. So uh, he's more than a cat. Yes, and he is very lucky to consider myself his friend. What did he say? He said that I was lucky to consider myself his friend. Oh, okay. I, I do feel that way. Okay. Uh, I don't have too many friends. 
You really aren't that bright, are you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's me, Adam, the DM over at Microphones and Monsters. You just got done listening to a short clip from our show. Microphones and Monsters is a Cthulhu Mythos 5th edition actual play podcast. We ask you to join us every week, Monday and Friday. You can find us on your favorite podcatcher, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find all of our links at microphonesandmonsters.com. Chapter 12, Part 2, Day 15, Afternoon, Party Status. All characters are at maximum hit points, except for Captain Tor, 15 out of 17 hit points. Kagan, 7 out of 8 hit points. Gyrios, 13 out of 14 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person and Light. Even with the torch in hand, Umura noticed the temperature drop the moment they passed the threshold. Ahead of them, a natural tunnel snaked into the gloom. The torches guttered as an errant gust of air blew past, making their shadows flicker against the glistening damp of the walls. The group ventured further in slowly. Ahead, the tunnel split into a wide junction. To the right, it went deeper into blackness. To the left, it opened into a small cavern. This space was roughly oval-shaped, with a low, stalactite-studded ceiling. It was small enough for their torchlight to illuminate its entirety. A kind of natural rock bench ridged the far wall. On this bench, a clay jar had been placed alongside a crude wooden bowl. The bowl contained the uneaten back half of a dead rat. The jug was half full of water. More than likely, this cavern served as the guard room or a rest area when the guards were not standing their posts. There were no exits and nothing else of interest, so the party returned to the main tunnel and took the other fork. This tunnel curved to the right some more and sloped slightly downward. Although their torches cast a reasonable amount of light, it did not penetrate far into the gloom and the party moved at a crawl. Umura could almost smell the nervous energy coming off the spearmen in front of her, or perhaps it was her own fear. No one spoke. They were all listening for the sounds of goblins or anything to alert them to whatever might be around the next corner. Still, they penetrated the darkness, step by cautious step. Eventually, the tunnel split once again. This time, it was more of a T. Umura remembered what Ilka told her, that the goblins were not allowed inside the second room. When she had asked why, he'd said he didn't know. It seemed that she was about to find out, for she could see what looked like a door barring the way further up the tunnel and to the right. To the left, the passage widened and opened into empty blackness. Although she could not see anything further than 20 feet in that direction, her ears told her that the space became much bigger. Thurn and Harl held a whispered conference in the front and the party moved to the right. What had seemed like a door was not exactly that. Someone had erected a barrier of sticks and twine, a makeshift wall constructed by the goblins if the poor workmanship was any indication. This barrier was set atop a kind of curb made of dirt and stones piled to a height of perhaps two feet off the tunnel floor. 
The wooden barrier had been wedged into the space above it where the tunnel narrowed slightly. As they moved closer, they could make out the shapes of several other items. A dozen torches, also homemade and really just rags wrapped around sticks, were stacked along one wall. A small fire pit had been dug into the opposite wall, well enough away from the barrier as to present no threat to it. It was full of ash, as though many fires had been lit there in the past. She whispered ahead to Eifold to get Thern's attention, and when the grim dwarf turned to her, the firelight cast deep, shifting shadows in the wrinkles and creases of his face. The dwarf lifted an eyebrow. Milady? Back in the woods. The goblin we captured. It warned us about this room. The goblins aren't allowed in. It didn't know why not. The older dwarf frowned and rubbed the bare crown of his head. Mightn't there be something inside worth hiding? Or something to hide from, said Umura, sounding doubtful. She had a bad feeling about this. Everything was much, much too quiet. She turned to Eredin and whispered, Where are the Nine Hells or the rest of them? I don't like this quiet. I feel like we're walking into a trap. This is when the goblins sleep, replied the other woman. They're probably all just sleeping, she repeated after a moment. Well, never know unless we check, said Thern with a shrug. He smacked Harl on the shoulder lightly with the back of his hand and said, Yeah, help me move this thing. You get that side, I'll get this one. The dwarves moved to either side of the barrier and took hold. It came free without much coaxing, and they placed it against the wall. Thern took a handful of dirt and stones from the curb and brought it close to Eiffel's torchlight. He shifted the dirt about in his palm with his thumb. Tiny, dull white crystals were mixed in with the earth and pebbles. Looks like salt, said Thern. Mun shouldered his shield and took up one of the goblin torches. He lit it from Eiffel's, and the party advanced over the curb into a cavern that stretched at least 20 feet in diameter, maybe more. The torchlight did not reach the far wall. They could see that garbage littered the floor of this cavern. Broken clay pottery, a half dozen spent goblin torches, all burned down to their blackened handles, and bones. There were bones of all kinds, mostly belonging to small animals, but some humanoid as well. There were several skulls that appeared to have belonged to goblins, and one that definitely appeared human. The bones were pure white, as if they'd been bleached, not just picked clean, but flawlessly white. The party members moved a little further in, and then further still, and began to disperse. Finally, they could see the walls of the room. There was more garbage here, but no exit. Something caught Umura's eye on the floor in the corner, and she was about to investigate when there was a strange sensation, like tiny hairs rising on the nape of her neck. It was as though time itself had stopped to take a breath. In the next instant, the air was full of screaming. This room is shunned by the goblins because it's the lair of two green slimes. These slimes are non-intelligent creatures, more akin to plants than they are to animals. They hang on the ceiling and drop when they feel vibrations beneath them. Green slimes secrete extremely strong acid, strong enough to eat through organic materials and even metal, though it cannot dissolve stone and salt repels it. Any creature that passes under a green slime without being aware of its presence cannot avoid being hit when it drops. The slime is extremely sticky stuff that adheres to flesh, clothing, weapons, 
and anything that touches it. It destroys armor and weapons in short order. Flesh that comes into contact with a green slime will be turned into more green slime if it's not burned off within one to four rounds. The stuff cannot be removed by scraping or any means other than burning, short of high-level magic. Both of the dwarves in our party, and all dwarves, are familiar with this deadly hazard and will know the terrible remedy. The only thing left to do now is find out which character was unlucky enough to have walked directly beneath them. There are 10 party members and two slimes. I'll roll a d10 twice to see who is hit. The same person cannot be hit twice. I'll post the table in a blog entry at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Here are the fateful rolls. I've rolled a four and an eight. Something heavy, heavy and wet, detached and fell from the ceiling directly over the heads of Gyrios and Mun. The force of the blow was enough to knock both men to the floor with a thick splat. When they rose to their feet, dazed, they were dripping something sticky, viscous, and green. It hung in elongating strands from their upraised arms as if they were trying to lift armloads of molasses. Gyrios, not wearing a helmet, was the first to start screaming. His hair was plastered to his scalp with slime. His expression quickly changed from shock to disgust, and then pain. Ah! It burns! An acrid smell filled the cool air of the cavern, and then there was a hiss as the men's armor, and indeed their flesh, began to dissolve. The dwarves were quick to react. With a curse, Harl scooped up Mun's torch from the floor where the man had dropped it. Without any hesitation, he thrust the flames into the slime. Simultaneously, the younger dwarf turned to Umura and barked, It must be burned off! Umura and Eiffel both held torches, but they found themselves paralyzed. Gyrios' face was now a mask of desperate agony. Behind the translucent green of the slime, Umura could see the skin of his cheeks and nose begin to bubble. He bellowed. Umura, remembering how she had attacked Gyrios when under German's spell, found that she simply could not. Kagan roughly grabbed the torch from her hand and pushed the flaming end at Gyrios. Black smoke and screams rose up from both men as the grizzly work was done. Umura could not bear to watch, but fell into Aradine's arms, sobbing uncontrollably. Green slime eats through metal quickly and then begins to consume flesh. I'll allow Mun two rounds before his flesh begins to transform into slime. Gyrios, with no helmet, will get just one round. Once their protection has been destroyed, each man will get an additional one to four rounds before they're killed outright. During this time, the slimes must be burned off, and the men will take the same burning damage as the slimes. First, I'll roll the slime's hit points. These must be small ones. They've got eight each, out of a possible 16. Here's another situation where I don't need to roll initiative. There are no two hit rolls, it's just a race against time, and a contest to see who can endure the most. 
Let's see how this horror plays out round by round. It's round one. The slimes eat through the men's chainmail armor. After this round, the slimes will begin to consume their flesh. Although Mun will get one additional round because he's wearing a helmet. Gyrios has no such protection, so his ticking clock will start earlier. Kagan and Harl are burning the slimes with torches. It's the only way to kill the things. Unfortunately, the men will take damage along with the slimes, as they cannot avoid being burned at the same time. Mun and his slime will each take two points of damage this round. Gyrios and his will each take three. Round two. I need to roll to see how many rounds the men will have before they're completely consumed by slimes and lost forever. I'll roll a die four to see how long they get. I've rolled a three. They need to destroy these things in three rounds or it's over for them. Kagan and Harl continue to apply fire to the slimes. Ribbons of black smoke mix in the air with the men's screams. Mun's slime takes three points of damage. Most of it has been burned off now, but tragically, Mun only had five hit points to begin with. The man drops to the ground, his skin hissing. Acid has completely eaten away his eyes and most of the skin of his face, where it isn't covered by the corroded metal of his helmet. Within seconds, Mun's head has become a smoking, blackened skull, his mouth a permanent rictus. The man is dead, but Harl continues to burn his body anyway. The smell, and indeed the sights in the room, cause Umura and Eifolt both to fall to their hands and knees, retching. Gyrios and his slime take damage this round too. I rolled a two. Gyrios' slime still has three hit points left, and the cleric will be dead in two more rounds regardless of his remaining hit point total if they cannot kill it by then. It's round three. Kagan continues to apply fire to the cleric. On this round, the fire does three points of damage. Kagan has succeeded in killing the slime before it can destroy Gyrios, but the cleric now has just five hit points. If he had not recently gained a level, he would have shared the same fate as Mun. Although still alive, he's been very badly burned, both by acid and fire. His hair is almost completely gone, and his skin is bright pink, unnaturally smooth in some places, horribly blistered in others. His eyes are wide with pain. The priest collapses to the floor, muttering prayers and moaning. The rest of the party can only watch, unable to help, and afraid to touch him, what comfort could they possibly have to offer? At this time, a glow begins to emanate from the cleric's middle, specifically from within his belt pouch. It starts small and soft, and then grows brighter, until the seams of the leather pouch are limed with orange from within. Gyrios notices this and hastens to unbuckle the pouch. He reaches his hand in and gasps. When he removes his shaking hand, he's holding the single coin that Soli had given him in the laboratory. The coin is glowing brightly, but Gyrios can still see the details of its minting. There's the crown, representing the king of Camertine on one side, and the sword, representing the king's army, on the other. A golden ripple washes across the side with the crown, 
and when it has passed, the image has changed. No longer is there a crown, but a graven image of the sun. A coolness now envelops Gyrios as the light from the coin pulses, and suddenly the cleric realizes that his pain is gone. To the amazement of the others, his skin begins to heal. The natural colors return. The blisters retreat. Gyrios rises to his feet. There's a look on his face that's hard to describe. Determination. Exultation. He lifts his chin and addresses the sky. Yes, Mazagar, my king, I shall be your sword. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It helps a great deal. Also, feel free to drop me a line at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Special thanks this episode goes to Jake Hendricks for contributing the voice of Thern. Thanks so much, Jake. Your participation makes the show so much better. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hello, listeners. My name is Austin Moraga, host of the Ironbound Chest, a new interview podcast that focuses on discussing monthly topics relating to D&D and TTRPGs. Each week, I aim to bring on someone from around the community, Podcasters, streamers, world builders, writers, dice makers, map makers, mini painters, homebrewers, cosplayers, singers, artists, illustrators, crafters, collectors, creators, and listeners. The chest is slowly but surely being filled with amazing and wonderful things, and I invite you all to help me in this task. You can find me on Spotify and almost wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for The Ironbound Chest. You can even find me on Twitter and Facebook. So I hope you take the time to listen and to help me add some wealth to the Ironbound Chest.